passage this morning, 1 Samuel 25, is one of the longest we've read in a long time. Um, So if you are able, praise God, and if not, we understand. Our main goal is that our hearts and our minds and our wills would be subject to what God says this morning. Last week, we saw that David held back his hand from taking vengeance on Saul when he was right before him. But he goes back into the wilderness, Saul goes back home, and then we pick up in our passage this morning, 1 Samuel 25, 1 through 44. If you're going to follow along, that's page 246 in the Pew Bibles. Let's attend to the word of the Lord together. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in the house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, there was a man in Ma'an whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please get whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who came from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us. We suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by day and by night, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves and two skins of wine, and five sheep already prepared, and five seahs of parched grain, and a hundred clusters of raisins, and two hundred cakes of figs, and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely, In vain have I guarded all that this fellow has has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. 
God do so to the enemies of David and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When David saw, excuse me, when Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, Oh, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up and pursue you to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living and the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by this morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. And Abigail said to Nabal, and Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king, and Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted the donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Lash, who was of Galim. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. It's a large passage of scripture, 
a lot happening in it. And before we pray and begin uh, to consider it, let me just remind us that each week when we focus on a passage of Scripture, we are really taking a bite from a meal, chewing it, and trying to get all of the nutrition and digest it for our well-being. But it is a bite out of a larger meal. Now, we may be tempted to view all of these different passages as their own self-contained uh, stories, but they're all interconnected. And, and like a meal, it's designed uh, to complement that there are flavors and herbs and spices that go well together and remind you and can serve as themes. We, we know things like apples go well with pork chops, or when we're enjoying a heavy meal at Thanksgiving with there's turkey and mashed potatoes and gravy, it can be nice to have something like cranberry sauce to, to cut, cut it with the lightness and the sweetness. There are a lot of interplaying things here that we can't spend all of our time looking at. The death of Samuel at the beginning of the passage, it's not really reflected on, but it's in the background. Samuel is the great remaining spiritual and really judicial authority of the land. Now without him, it seems like the prospect of David and Saul truly reconciling is unlikely to happen. And it leaves the question of who will truly be who Israel looks to in this time. And then there's, the, oh, there's tons of name play. Nabal means fool, but Scripture likes to play on names, and Nabal backwards is Laban. Laban, who was also a rich man, who, was, who liked to hold on to his wealth, who even cheated Jacob out of what he deserved. Caleb can be translated dog, and there's all kinds of references to dogs here. And, and then at the end of the passage, we just get this, this quick bit of news that David has remarried. They have, Hinoam is likely his first wife after he's been divorced from Michael because of Saul's efforts, and then he marries Abigail. And while it seems like good news that David is marrying this wise and beautiful woman, we are already catching some of the hints of the disaster that strikes when a man who seeks to have power marries multiple women. We can't unpack all those things. We can't trace all those threads. Just wanted to just draw your attention to these things so that while we focus in on this particular bite of the meal, we don't lose sight of the larger meal of God's word as our daily bread. With that said, as we try to focus in on the main themes Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Gracious God, how beautiful is your word. Your servant, David, later in his life, described it as sweeter than honey. Lord, as we taste of the sweetness of your word, as we pray that it nourishes us and guides us and sustains us, would you give us understanding not according to the limits of our minds and our own experiences, but through the help of your Spirit, which sheds light on truth. Lord, help me to speak only what is true and helpful for your people this morning. In the name of Christ, amen. First Samuel 25, what we just read, is a close call for David. There's been a lot of close calls for David. He fights a giant experienced in warfare and 
comes out victorious. Saul throws spears at him when they're in the same room and he narrowly escapes death. He has to sneak out a window of his own home and have Michael put an idol in his bed so that he escapes King Saul's men. He narrowly escapes on one side of a mountain as Saul is pursuing him when the Philistines attack and Saul has to go back. David's life has been threatened a number of times and he's narrowly escaped. His life is not threatened in this passage. But it is a narrow escape that's no less significant because though his life is not in danger here, his integrity is. His righteous standing before the Lord. David was supposed to be a king unlike Saul. Saul was a king who has proven himself to be rash, to be selfish, to in the end begin to accumulate for himself and those around him wealth. David was supposed to be a different kind of king. Not a king like the nations, but a king after God's own heart. And yet in this passage, he narrowly escapes bringing guilt upon himself by taking revenge on Nabal. But just as God has been faithful in the past to deliver him from physical danger, God is faithful here to deliver him from a different danger. A danger from within. David has been delivered from Goliath, from Saul, from Saul's men. Now David is delivered by God from himself. This isn't actually new. God worked to deliver David last week from his temptation to take vengeance. Saul is right in front of him in the cave, fully exposed. But there David is able to feel a pang of guilt quickly. The temptation is less overt. But here, his sword is strapped on, he's on his way, and God, who is faithful, delivers him. How does God deliver him? What does he deliver him from? What is the significance of that? The first thing that we see in this passage is that, that God delivers David from his Now, threats to David's life, no big deal, right? He's gracious and compassionate. He forgives Saul. He's unwilling to take Saul's life into his own hands. He releases him and lets him go. And that's after multiple attempts on his life. He responds to that evil with good. But the evil that he he is tempted to return evil to is when he is insulted. David and his men have been living in the wilderness. One of the things that is evident from this passage that they do is is as Nabal's shepherds are out, they keep an eye on the shepherds. They make sure their sheep don't wander off, but more importantly, as we've read earlier in 1 Samuel, the Philistines and others are likely to swoop in when there's a possibility of gathering loot for themselves. And so David's men have been like a wall, like a hedge, protecting them from attack and from losing. And thereby, not only are the shepherds protected, but Nabal has been protected. And so David has a suggestion. It's sheep shearing time. 
Sheep shearing time, this is a time of celebration. It's a time of abundance. The sheep uh, are, and the wool that you get from them is an offering of wealth. And so often there was a festive time. And so David's saying, hey, we've done all this for your good. We know it's customary to share in the celebration. Would you give us a small token? And David does it humbly. He identifies himself as a servant to Nabal. He doesn't demand it. It's a request. And there's even the hint that he would be willing to continue to do this for Nabal. How does Nabal respond? Who is he? Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? He's nothing. Who is this guy? And this is all the more galling because the descendants of Caleb are from the same territory as the descendants of Judah. They overlap in the places where they would have lived. It's likely that Nabal's family knows Jesse's family. They at least overlap in business and trade. And so he, he is not in ignorance of who he is, but he's saying, well, what importance is he? And then he accuses him. He says, there are a lot of servants breaking away from their masters. Who has David been? He has been nothing but a faithful servant to Saul. He has defended him. He's been the head over his bodyguard. He's led the military into victory for which Saul has benefited. When Saul has tried to put him to death, David has been faithful not to return violence on Saul's head. And here is this nobody treating David like he is some rebellious flunky running away from his master. And it is the prick of his pride, not the danger of violence, but his pride that is leading David down a dangerous path. As Proverbs 16, 18 tells us, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And though David has a right to feel insulted, though Nabal truly has mistreated him, it would be a breaking of God's law for him to avenge himself by killing Nabal, and also what David intends to do to kill all the men in the household of Nabal. It would have made him guilty before God. It would have brought a stain on his reputation as he prepared to be king, but it would have also risked him becoming like Nabal. We're told Nabal is haughty. He's not a particularly wise person. In fact, his own servant says no one can speak to him. I mean, what kind of servant in this day of age, and servant can be rightly translated slave, what kind of slave would go to his master's wife and say, you know how dumb and foolish your husband is? He has to be pretty foolish, and everyone has to understand that in order for him to feel like he could safely say that. And, and when Abigail comes to tell him all that has transpired, he is richly feasting, and it describes him like a king. He sounds and acts like another king that we've been dealing with. Saul, who rejects Samuel's guidance, who begins to trust in his own desires, who is rash with his words and his promises of vengeance, who promises his men that the goodness of serving him is in the riches and the vineyards that they will acquire for themselves. 
verse 11, as he responds to David's messengers, just notice the focus of Nabal. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men from whom I do not know where? In the Hebrew, the, the mys stand out even more. Despite the, the protection of David, the labor of his shepherds, Nabal says, this is mine. I deserve it. It belongs to me. He is rich. He has a beautiful wife. He has lots of servants and cattle. He didn't ask for God's help. And so he thinks he doesn't owe anything to anyone. Don't you hate people that look down their noses at other people? They are the worst, aren't they? Man, I feel bad for people that look down on other people. You catch that? I'm borrowing from Tim Keller there. That is the insidious nature of pride. Is that it begins to look to the evil and the foolishness of someone else and invites us into the same mistakes through our own pride. David is beginning to be foolish because his pride has been wounded by an even more proud and foolish man. And in responding to him in kind, he risks going down the same path as Nabal. This is why Galatians 6 warns us, brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should look down your nose at them should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. And then hear this, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. As soon as we feel good about our own sense of righteousness, we put our sense of righteousness under threat. I, I heard a joke once. It wasn't originally about pastors, but that's probably the safest way to tell it again. A pastor went to the doctor and he said, Doctor, everything hurts. My toe hurts, my knee hurts, my elbow hurts, my chest hurts, my head hurts. And the doctor said, yeah, tell me more about that. Yeah, when I touch my toe, it hurts. When I touch my thigh, my knee, when I touch my elbow, it hurts. And then the doctor said, hold out your hand. The doctor touched his finger. How does your finger feel? The problem was not that all those things hurt. The problem was that the pastor's finger hurt. He projected the pain of the finger upon all of those body parts. This is what pride does to us. Is it invites us to see our problems and our struggle as out there. It's Nabal's fault for his insult. He deserves this. The problem is out there. Pride will say our reputation in the eyes of the world is what matters. Right? David's reputation as a righteous, as a good man has been threatened. When we believe that lie of pride, that in turn hurts our witness as Christians in two ways, because we will be tempted to fight or to flee. On, on one hand, if, if people say you are less than, they want to look down on us, they insult us for following Christ. On one hand, we will be tempted to fight back and say, oh yeah? This is what you have against Christians? Let me show you why you're wrong. 
And we risk going down that same path of pride. On the other hand, we can flee. We can flee from what's right and good and true because if it brings our reputation down in the eyes of others, if it hurts our sense of pride, then we will resist doing what's right if we're fearful of what others think. God says it is not your reputation before men that matters. It is your reputation before me that matters. Your righteousness that matters. What kind of king would David be if he was so stirred up to wrath by insult? I know I never want to be president. I know I never want to be governor because people say horrible things. How much more so if David is to become truly king? God wants him to be a king, but not a king who rules in pride. He has shown himself to be a good shepherd, and one of the pictures of a good king is a shepherd. He's protected the shepherds as they protected the sheep. He's watched over the flock. But a good shepherd also needs to bear with the sheep when they bite back. God, in his care for David, in his concern for him becoming king, is concerned less about his reputation in the eyes of Nabal, less about what others think if David will let Nabal get away with such insulting behavior and cares more about his righteousness before him. Some would think that the highest sign of leadership is the demand for respect. But while Jesus deserved all respect, all honor and glory, he bore scorn and insults and responded not in kind. Some of them were mild. Jesus of Nazareth, what good can come out of Nazareth? Some a little bit more insulting. Isn't Jesus the son of Mary? Asking the question, well, what about Joseph? Or those who nailed him to a cross and said, here is your king, the king of the Jews to which he responded, Father, forgive them. If he did that for us, then we, we look to him instead of our pride, which leads us into vengeance and the ruin of our actual reputation because of sin. God cares for our righteous reputation, but not perceived through the opinion of others, but according to the actual standing that he has, that we have before him. And one of the ways that he cares about our righteousness is not just saying, I want you to be righteous, but by giving others that care for our righteousness too. While God is the ultimate hero of the passage, while David gives God the glory and praise for withholding his hand, the human hero of this passage is not the one that we've been reading week, and week, week in and week out. It's not David. The human hero here is Abigail. Abigail means the delight of my father, and she is well named. And if Proverbs 31 gives us a picture of wisdom and what a woman of great worth is like through poetry, we see such a woman in action here. A woman out, risking her life, risking her reputation to do what is right. Abigail's wisdom contrasts with the foolishness of her husband, Nabal, and the pending foolishness of David's intended action. Whereas Nabal was haughty and prideful, Abigail is humble. 
She prostrates herself before David. It is possible. We have read of no other woman so wealthy as Abigail in the rest of Scripture in the Old Testament. No other woman is attended with five handmaidens as she is. And we know that Nabal is exceedingly wealthy. And yet in her great wealth, in her commensurate power, she prostrates herself before a band of men living off the countryside. While Nabal is greedy, Abigail is generous. While Nabal is feasting, Abigail is risking her life. And it is her gracious humility God uses to pierce David's angry pride. We talked about last week how it is God's compassion and kindness that leads to repentance, and we see a picture of that not just in David with Saul, but in Abigail with David. And what we see at work is not just human wisdom and wisdom in how to negotiate with others. I mean, she's wise, right? She sends gifts ahead of her. She lowers herself to show respect to David. She takes on risk. She even makes a good argument. One of the best things you can do as a salesman when you're negotiating is assume that the other person's going to agree with you. And she says, I have restrained your hand. I'm so glad I've restrained your hand. And so David's like, oh, oh yes, you restrained my hand. So she's showing great wisdom. But more than her wisdom, what is significant that beyond saving her husband and her household, she is interested in David's righteousness. She's not just interested in escaping what might happen to her in her household. Because if that was the case, she could just appease him with the gifts. If that was the case, she could just swap sides and say, I know you're coming for Nabal in the household. Spare me, I'm with you. But instead, when the primary thing she does is she focuses on what is right. She takes responsibility. She takes on the guilt of her husband. She describes it as her transgression. Would the guilt be upon her? She takes responsibility not only for Nabal's actions, but she takes responsibility for David's righteousness. She does this at great risk. She is a woman, a powerful woman, who goes out at night to meet another man who happens to be the proclaimed enemy of her husband. This potentially could bring great shame on her and the household. She's also putting herself at risk of assault under the power of these men. And depending on how angry David is, she risks death. Yet her concern is that David is turned away from taking vengeance by his own hand, from working salvation by his hand, as she describes it. Whereas David is risking his righteousness to protect his reputation, Abigail risks her reputation and her life to protect righteousness. What is right for her future king and for her household? By God's gracious intervention, David's violent anger is stopped. And instead of the declared destruction, he sends her home in peace. And he is able to depart with a clear conscience because he has not killed her. He has not killed Nabal's household. He has not brought that guilt upon himself. His righteous standing before the Lord has been preserved by the work 
of another who took responsibility for the sin and stupidity of her own husband and against the coming sin of David. God's concern for our righteousness is not just to say, I want you to be righteous. I command you to be righteous. But to give us the gift of others to bear up against temptation to pursue justice and holiness instead. We should be asking, how does God use us to protect the righteousness of others? Has God placed us in the lives of other men and women so that we can serve them in a way that Abigail serves David? Proverbs 27, 17 says, Iron sharpens iron, and so one man sharpens another. The question is, to what purpose are we sharpening one another? We can become really good at gossip. We can become really good at complaining and nursing our wounds and increasing in bitterness as we spend time together. Or we can sharpen one another to the purpose of service and generosity and compassion. Are we sharpening one another towards our pride, towards what is pleasing to God? Hebrews 10, 24 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. One of the reasons that God has given us the church is because we are not meant to follow him. We can't, in fact, follow him apart from the command to not only love him, but to love our neighbors as ourselves. We need each other in order to do what is right. He gives us one another to stir one another up towards love and good works. And notice that that verse in Hebrews is followed by verse 25, which says, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Gathering in worship together reminds us that God is our highest good, and that we are to live according to what is right. But he has called us together, so that we can help each other in that work. We're not meant to do it alone. He has given us to each other. And that will mean risk. Many of us understand that sometimes a friend just needs to vent, right? You, you get a text message, you get a call, you're talking to your spouse after dinner, and they just need to get it out, right? What that person said at work, what happened to them on the drive home. Sometimes they just need to vent. But then what? What comes after that? Is it being a good friend or a good spouse or a good sibling in Christ to leave it there? While sometimes a venting can be a good release valve, it can also be a reinforcement of one's pride. Can you believe how foolish Nabal is? I'm in the right here. A good friend pushes past the hurt to what does a righteous response look like? A listening ear makes for a good friend, but a better friend lovingly confronts our pride and our sinfulness and our temptation to what is wrong when it begins to lift its head. Because love for us goes beyond making us feel good. Love for us wants the good for us, which includes doing good, doing what is right before the Lord. And that means sometimes we might risk the friendship as Abigail in protecting her husband may risk her very marriage to her husband as in her desire to protect her household from bloodshed 
means that she puts herself at risk of David. Her concern for David's righteousness in coming to him puts herself at risk. Are we willing to risk for the good and for the righteousness of those around us? And we are to likewise not just to seek to be such friends, but to receive such friends. David acknowledges that God has restrained his hand from harming Abigail, who intended his good. Are we likewise ready to receive correction from others? Even at the cost of our ego. Even at the cost of feeling like we're right. At the cost of admitting that we're wrong. That we don't have it all together. Are we ready to risk for the sake of what is right, for not only for ourselves, but for others? Now, here's one of the things, is if we give up our reputation, if we give up others in responding to those that insult us or hurt our feelings, to those who drag our name through the mud, who think little of us, if that is what Abigail calls David to do to resist the temptation to take vengeance, because that's what God wants, we can begin to ask, does God not care then? Does God just want us to be doormats? Does God not care when we are bullied and insulted and assaulted by others? The reason that God doesn't want us to respond in kind is because his love for our righteousness includes our reputation. What he wants is a reputation grounded in what is righteous, not in what is perception. The issue is not that God doesn't care about what others think or say about us. He cares about gossip. He cares about slander. He cares about bullies. But his care for us starts with calling us not to become like them in response, but instead to trust him. When David blesses Abigail, it is according to God's goodness to bless David. He's not only spared from the guilt of vengeance, but David acknowledges from working salvation with my own hand. He's echoing what Abigail says to him twice, that she is seeking to prevent him from working salvation with his own hand. And, and by salvation, this word has a broad range of meaning. It can be like saved from a fire. It can mean saved in terms of our spiritual well-being with the Lord. But it also can just mean he's going to save himself from this insult. If he was to take action, then who receives the credit for his vindication? Who is the winner of that battle? David. But David is supposed to be fighting what battles? He has been called to fight whose battles? The Lord's battles, not his. The problem is that to save ourselves is to glorify ourselves. But instead, we are to trust and seek God's glory. And in so doing, we will be vindicated. God vindicates the name of his people. David has expressed trust that God will vindicate him with regard to Saul. He could have taken vengeance on Saul and killed him, but he said, I'm going to trust in the Lord. The Lord will judge. Now he gives up trying to take vindication upon Nabal. What happens? Justice is done. Nabal is struck by the Lord. Probably has a stroke from the description of what happens to him, but it is accredited to God's action. Justice is done. Probably not just for David, but it would seem for Abigail as well, who has suffered under this foolish and this man of worthlessness. 
David is encouraged afresh not to take vengeance because he is reminded that God's promise to vindicate his people is true. And that while he might have to wait on vindication with regard to Saul, he can truly trust that God will act on his behalf. Abigail, in her in her speech to David, reminds him that God will cast his enemies away like stones from a sling while he will have the honor of his name being, it says, in the bundle. But think of how a book would have been put together. They bundle the, the leaves, the paper that they have together. His honor will be written to be written in the very book of life. This is one of the covenant promises of God. Not that insults don't matter, but because we are entrusting ourselves to him, he will bring about the correction of what is demeaning and insulting to us. As God makes a covenant with Abraham, what does he say? I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. You are going to be awesome. You're going to be powerful. You're going to be rich, Abraham and your descendants. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's promise to Abraham is not that he won't be insulted, but that God will vindicate Abraham. Jesus intensifies this. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We are called blessed because our hope is not in what others think of us, nor the greatness of what we have done, but the greatness of what God has done on our behalf. When Jesus sent out the disciples, they they went out proclaiming the news of the kingdom, and they were healing people, and demons were being cast out, and Jesus says, Don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. When we put our faith in Jesus, when we are baptized into the triune name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we receive a better name, a better reputation, a greater glory than we could ever achieve for ourselves, whether in our efforts or in our correction of those who would demean our reputation. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved but the name of Jesus. If our name is bound up in the glory of Christ, we will share in his glory. And thus, brothers and sisters, what insult can compare to the glory of Christ? What victory that we might attain over insult can compare to the victory that is ours in Jesus over sin, death, and the accuser. In Jesus' name, we have perfect righteousness. In Jesus' name, we have a perfect reputation. And so let us not fight to vindicate ourselves, but trust in him who gives his name for us. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, when our pride is wounded, would you sin, whether by your word, by your spirit, by a friend, your means of keeping us from foolish temptation? Would we trust that your vindication, your justice, your salvation is greater than we could ever achieve for ourselves? This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.